tech center, if you will, post-pandemic, and although after SVB and that whole Silicon Valley bank debacle it sort of slowed down a little bit, um, there were a lot of people who were, had very pretty pitch books, cool logos, some board of advisors, but that really just, you know, that they weren't really doing anything. Thank you so much for tuning in to Journey with Christian DeEvans Podcast. I'm your host, Christian DeEvans. Now, I am... Most of us, we go out there and we always want to invest like the 1%. Well, what if I told you you don't want to? What if you want to invest like the 0.001%? Well, that's the reason why I have this next guest on. He is the author of Investing Legacy, how the 0.001% invest. He is also the CEO and co-founding partner at HRN, CEO and CIO, Chief Investment Officer of Dandrew Partners Capital Management, where they work very closely with privately held assets, including real estate, institutional-based credit, equity, venture fund creation, management, and private direct investment structures, working with hundreds upon hundreds of family offices doing certain specific exclusive deals. We're so excited about having him on. Please welcome my next guest, the one and only Salvatore Buscemi. How are you doing today, my man? How are you? Christian, it's great. Good to see you. Good to talk to you again. It's a pleasure and a privilege. Just looking at what we were talking about last week, I think this could be a very killer episode for us. What do you think? Oh, definitely, man. And I'm excited about it because one of the things you mentioned, and we were just riffing on just before we got on this podcast, about just the, the, the things that the middle class don't have access to and how the 0.001%, how they totally think differently. And I want to, uh, I know this is going to start big, but you mentioned this in your book, Investing Legacy, which is really, really incredible. I had the opportunity to read it. But Salvatore, real quick, what do you think the middle class are getting tremendously wrong and don't even have access to to some of these exclusive deals? I think what they get wrong is that a lot of people who are the middle class today are really the 1%, right? I mean, we're talking about the difference between the 1% and the top thousandth of the 1%, which is the top decile of the world um, as far as society and investing is concerned. And the problem is with the middle class today is that they're they're speculators. They're speculating and they, they don't understand how, assess, how to assess risk correctly. And obviously that has come down, um, you know, that <laughs> a lot of those, um, you know, speculative investments we've seen sort of die off over time pretty spectacularly. Even though Bitcoin has had some sort of a, you know, a run up, we saw FTX collapse. We saw a lot of people that were putting a lot of money into on a speculative get rich quick basis, especially the middle class, they started getting wiped out on it. And I think the problem is, is that they don't take time to really do two things. Number one, if they really want to become a professional investor and they really want to build a legacy for themselves, they have to build a formidable network. That means if you're a doctor, you have to leave your doctor, you know, you're, 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 it's sort of like, um, what is it when they tell you, like, when you want to change your lifestyle, you have to, like, change your friends or change who you're around with, whether, like, you're, you know, trying to lose weight or, you're, you know, you're trying to stop drinking. I think the problem is, is that people get too caught up in the herd mentality and, you know, they have one guy that's knocking it out of the park, supposedly, in one stock, and they're all taking um, advice from each other. Um, which is usually not the right advice, but it becomes speculative and they're following the person who's perceived to be the smartest, but they put a lot of money into that because they're just lazy and they don't want to do the work themselves. It's, it's incredible. It's, they don't want to, it's almost, they don't have the time to do it, but um, it's almost like they're, they're, they're swinging for the fences intentionally because they know that for over the past 14 years we've had zero interest rates, so that's robbed them of their savings. And if you look at low interest rates, that's really a tax. And, you know, there, there are things that have affected that the middle class for someone who's making less than three, you know, around $300,000 a year that is not affecting people in the much higher, 
you know, income strata, I wouldn't say income strata, but people who own a lot more uh, assets, pr principally privately held assets. Let me ask you this because you've been in this industry many, many years, and I love what you said because you mentioned this in the book. Is it is about you know those those private access, those exclusivity you know kind of uh, environments where not everybody's able to get access to, and like you mentioned in the book as well, mm -hmm. and you, you mentioned in other pieces of content you talk about where the the high, you know, ultra high net worth individuals right they think about different. It's more status right. But I want to ask before we dive into that, it's more of Salvatore. At what point in your journey? Did you understand the impact of network, but then not only the impact of network, but also how did you navigate it to be able to get into those big, big arenas to be able to network with those uh, exclusive individuals and the partners that you have now? Probably the most, and I talk about this in my book, Investing Legacy, um, how the 0.001% invest. And I think the biggest lesson I've ever had was that my grandfather, um, Thomas Danger, was a hotelier and he was very... Um, I learned a lot from him, right? We would always go out to, you know, Sunday, you know, lunch, or, you know, after church, we'd go out to um, breakfast with him, and he would impart his principles. And really, he was always saying that your network is the most important thing in your reputation. And I took this to heart because when I was in school, in college in New York City, I was kind of miserable because I was pre-med at the time. I was biology and chemistry. I was um, a rower on the team, too, so I was pretty busy, but I was just, it was hard because between junior and senior year, I, I, I read a book called Confessions of a Medical Heretic. Now, this was back in 1992, I'm talking about. The book was written in 77, 1977, and that sort of formulated into me the, you know, where it, it sort of made me kind of anxious as to where I was going to go. And I was working with this doctor at the time who um, was a famous orthopedic surgeon for the Knicks, and I would go down um, to over to Beth Israel Hospital where there was a total knee reconstructive surgery center. And I passed out holding a fibula um, about a couple of months in, in the cadaver room. And I said to myself, I'm not really doing this for the right reasons, I'm not really into it. And it made senior year kind of hard for me. So I went through the motions and I continued with the internship, only doing research, right? So I was doing a lot of library work and, and you know not really doing too much in the ER, although I was participating and watching these guys with hammers just whack knees and <laughs> making me sick to my stomach. And after I graduated, I, um, the doctor I worked for, um, he knew something was up. And, you know, me being younger at the time, just graduated, I, I didn't have the heart to tell him that I didn't want to go to medical school because this guy had championed me. You know, he had the perfect life of something that I would aspire to have that nobody has today unless you're in plastics. And that is, you know, you had the Aston Martin, the beautiful wife, a house in the same building as Gloria Vanderbilt on the Upper East Side and all of this stuff. And, and he was really championing me hard. And... I basically had a, an hour-long conversation with him one day, and I remember it was when the first cell phones came out, and I'm on the corner of the street on East 10th Street, and I'm talking to him, and he's like, hey, I haven't heard from you in a while. And it was an hour-long conversation, and he finally said, you know what, Sal, I agree with you. You're a hard worker. By the way, my brother just made partner at Goldman Sachs. I think you should talk to him. And at that point, that's how the reputation and the network started to grow, and that was probably the most important lesson of my life because at that point, it was really what people thought of you. And so many, you know, like your work ethic and your character and everything. And, and that's really gotten me kind of far, especially when I was trying to raise money at the age of 29, which is kind of young. I was able to get $30 million from a Park Avenue investment manager because I was the only one that said, hey, you're, we have to short the housing market. Here's how we're going to do it. And we basically became the kitchen sink for Bear Stearns. And then I replicated that same thing in, um, in, in the western United States and Las Vegas and Southern California where there was a lot of the commercial distress. 
And if it comes down to that, it's really the network. And a lot of people don't put a lot of time in the building relationships. Like I was, you and I were shooting the breeze before this, and we always do. It's like, yeah, Miami's a great life. I live down here. You can tell by the chandelier in the background. I love it. Um, it has a different vibe here. It's not like New York at all. It's almost like a 24-7 city. But the network here is just incredible because I came here and I moved here specifically to build relationships. To build relationships that weren't in New York that I had already, um, but to rebuild new relationships down here because Miami's really become sort of like the melting pot recently. There's people who have displaced themselves from California to move out here. Um, there's a tremendous amount of um, wealth and affluence, but there's also a lot of smart people here too who are more aligned with what we're doing and, and you know that book is sort of like the dog whistle for them so when I go to Palm Beach I hand that out like cookies people read it they get back to me and you know it sort of formulates building a community because that's what people want today is that interactivity and you're on my email list so you see my emails you see everything that goes out uh, you see pictures from like the black tie galas that interactivity people like people want that communication and I go out of my way and I've made this clear with my partners and they love it is that we interview the CEOs. You know, some of these guys like to do it the old school way in the 90s where they, you know, sent out these huge letters. And I used to send out these huge investment letters, Christian, but nobody would read them. And then I recorded it on video, and then people were like, it's boring. So now I'm like, we got to turn this into a way where people, we get people's attention because that's really the most valuable thing today uh, is getting people's attention. As a professional podcaster, you know that, right? And when, when you're able to do that, it works really, really well. And that's what we're trying to do is just to keep the attention of all of our member families so that they understand this is what we're working on. There's always going to be good things. There's going to be some bad things. We haven't had any bad things, thankfully, you know, knock on wood. Um, but we tell people why we haven't had any bad things. And we're very clear with that. And we do a lot of repetition and refrains that we only invest in world-class companies with pedigreed operators or sponsors or founders or CEOs who have been through this before, uh, not first-time people who are looking, you know, for, for an opportunity on Shark Tank. And, you know, not to go too much further on it, but if you look at Shark Tank, if you, these, that's a great show as far as, like, the microcosm of, like, venture, inv venture investing or private investing in, in America today. It's people don't have the network, they have an idea, so they go groveling on national TV for $300,000. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And I see the power of it that has evolved over and over and over. You've seen in every deal that you guys have done, um, you know, at Andrew Partners, it, it has been through your network and your ecosystem that you have established and the relationships you've built. And you go very heavily in your book, yeah. which actually I want to kind of pivot a little bit. I'm so glad you talked a little bit about your investment thesis because sure. you actually talk a little bit about um, – the, the filtering process, if you guys are going to harness your mm -hmm. ecosystem and deploy and infuse capital with this company, whatever that deal may be, whether it's you know different alternative investing, private equity, VC, direct, whatever it may be, you talk a lot about kind of your criteria, and it's actually very heavy, and I thought that was actually really a breath of fresh air, if you will, in regards to your investment thesis. I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about that, where you talk, obviously, the, the kind of quality that you're looking in regards to the founder, what they need to have, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. several years, and, and other different um, different instruments and thesis. Uh, please, please share that a little bit, because I thought that was just really, really remarkable. We, yeah, we have come to an early, when we set up the multifamily office that does a lot of venture stuff in life sciences, it was mostly, um, mostly real estate investors who had a gateway drug to life sciences, but through philanthropy, and they were screwing it up. And they were giving to these foundations that had high expense ratios and made them feel good, but, you know, only 10% of the dollar really made it towards its intended purpose. 
and we, we found out that our biggest strength was um, our network. And what it was is that a lot of these deals I had been doing with Dan Drew Partners beforehand with a few cowboy families who trusted me. But I went out there and I said to them, I said, look, we're not going to invest in anything in venture that doesn't fit these two things, at least two. Okay, And this is important, but people take it for granted. We bet on people. All risk is human. So first, if it's a founder or a real estate sponsor, we'll start with venture first. I want them to have multiple exits. We're doing a deal right now where it's going to be the, it's called Thrive Bioscience. It'll be the founder's 15th exit and possibly his eighth unicorn. These are people you want to invest into. Now, there's also smart money too. And when you look at a venture company or any sort of entity that's private you're investing into, the cap table or the other investors is really the soul of the asset because that tells you if this guy has a good network or not. And when you see other larger leading name brand families who have a specialty in this going into it, then that adds a tremendous amount of conviction. And so for us, then we know that there's other smart people at the table and we can compare notes and gossip and everything. Because the, big, the definition of risk that people don't, nobody really wants to talk about is everybody has a quantitative approach and they'll come up with all sorts of things where they talk about negative data and all this stuff. But really, at the end of the day, it means what are you going, who are you, <laughs> if anything goes wrong, who are you going to point the finger to? And that's really what it comes down to. Are they going to point it to you because you made the bad decision? Or are you going to point it to the CEO because he didn't know what he was doing and something happened personally in his life? And it becomes an issue. So when you have a CEO that's had a tremendous amount of experience, there's also a tremendous amount of emotional intelligence, too. You can have very, very smart people, and I liken it to like a, a V12 Mercedes engine. But if they don't have the emotional intellect or the emotional quotient to be able to transact in a way or deal with life situations, then really they don't have a strong enough transmission. If you put a V12 in a Honda transmission, what's going to happen? It's not going to work, right? Some, the engine will blow up or the transmission will just drop or just, you know, who knows what will happen. I'm not really a big car buff, but it will never get to its intended recipient, which is the rubber on the road, you know, as far as the traction. So when you look at these, when you look at these, you know, these, these operators, I want them to see that they've done this before. And moving to Miami has become a tremendous tech center, if you will, post-pandemic, and although after SVB and that whole Silicon Valley bank debacle, it sort of slowed down a little bit, um, there were a lot of people who were, had very pretty pitch books, cool logos, some board of advisors, but that really just, you know, that they weren't really doing anything. And, you know, when you see through it all, it's just nothing but a great idea with a pretty pitch book, and I'm looking for the depth, meaning if there is another Silicon Valley bank, if there is another uh, pandemic. If there's another, you know, just because it's extreme now doesn't mean that it's necessarily rare. And, you know, if there is another 500 basis point hike in the markets, who am I going to want to be in bed with at that point when things go wrong? And I think a lot of people don't look at it that way. They look at it from the, well, what can go right? Look at everything that can go right. Well, this guy is smart. Yes, he's, you know, turning 50 and it's his first, you know, entrepreneur, entrepreneurial um, endeavor, but he's got a great idea and a great pitch book. That's not enough for me. So by the time it comes to us, you know, people know that we have to look at things and we only look at, you know, first class opportunities. And that's, that's how we do it. And in real estate, it's, um, it's a little more, it's, it's a little different than that. But, you know, because I'm sure there's real estate investors here who are looking to invest passively into real estate, we have a great track record and we're very protective of the track record because of the fact that we follow three rules. Before it even gets to my plate, I mean, before it gets to the point where I have to actually look at it, I want a, um, a sponsor that's had, um, that's been through at least two economic cycles. First economic cycle, I guess you can say going back would be 2008 and then one before that probably going back, you know, to the late 90s. 
that shows that they have the network and the conviction to be able to work through um, difficult issues and they have the network themselves to get things leased up quickly. I also want to see them put a meaningful um, sponsor commitment, you know, co-invest into it. Sometimes you'll see them put nothing into it. Sometimes they'll roll fees into it if they're playing broker-dealer. We've all seen that game. Um, but one of the things that I like to see is, you know, put in a maximum amount. 5% is cute, 10% is thoughtful. Anything more shows complete conviction. And that's really what we're stating right now is that some of the deals we do, the sponsor puts in, you know, 30% or 40%. That makes me feel much more warm and fuzzy at night going to bed knowing in the middle of a pandemic that there's a lot of bad things that need to happen before I or my investors lose money. And then the last thing, too, is an audited track record. I want to make sure that we get an audited track record as well. If your track record is so great, how come you didn't pay to get it audited? You know, And this is to us, it sort of gives me um, the creature comforts knowing, okay, now we can start looking into the numbers of the deal. Because before then, who cares about the numbers? If you're not dealing with the best in class, why, 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 do the number, why would it matter? Don't even follow, you know, and people do this, and investors don't understand this who, who are new to this game, is that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, the models function both in felt, and you, and both that's in why I really wanted to, you know, footstep on this because I just thought that was so cool how you have these high right? hurdles. And so when you look at it, you are really, you, know, <laughs> you really need to know what to look at before, and, and you need to really have some sort of determined rules, a structure around it before you start taking other people's money. Does it does and filtering out majority of of these these deals, right? Before they even land on your uh, like you mentioned, all the. And so I want uh, I want to talk a little bit about that, and then there's the the, the actual measurement of the the KPIs. Yeah. What's what's the story behind you know the mm -hmm. last three years of growth and four years of growth, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I know this is probably very industry and contextual, depending upon each industry and the margins and so forth. But is there kind of a methodology, or the way you look at it in regards to when you're looking at the company and reviewing them in regards yeah. to their their metrics, their KPIs, mm -hmm. um, once you complete the first a uh, few steps. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, and that's 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 diligence, and I think you know when we're looking at life sciences, it's like the swim lanes, it's like the efficacy, and there's many ways of looking of of, of being able to translate that into a way that's meaningful on a comparative basis. However, um, because we are dealing with venture and we are dealing with um, you know things that are private I am those KPIs are great to hit and sometimes they get hit and sometimes they don't I like to look at seeing how fast this operator has moved in the past as a proxy to see how fast he'll move in the future so you could have any sort of pro forma any sort of pro forma KPIs or something in front of you but it, it that doesn't necessarily mean that those are going to get hit so what is the what is the backup plan then when it comes to this is what what happens if these KPIs don't get hit what happens if this doesn't go through as you know it's uh, phase two trial. What, what happens next? And I'm always looking to see, well, what's the backup plan? What happens after this? How do we commercialize it? They, they, I think the KPIs are very good to look at, and I think when you're looking at more consumer-based businesses, digital online businesses, you look at those things differently. But what we're looking for is the growth and the efficacy um, and really people noticing it, especially with one of our companies, Genius Biotechnology, um, based in Boston, they're partnering right now with Yale to manufacture their product. That's important for me. That's one of their, you know, I, I wouldn't call it a KPI, but that's what I call a strategic partnership that's going to be able to bring them to commercialization much faster. And for me, it's what is what are the pieces that you're doing to move to commercialization much faster than anything else, and how is that being done in real time? 
And that really is more or less a function of a business plan and relationships than it is in something you can put on paper. And it's the same thing with real estate. Like a lot of people overpaid for real estate because they were looking out for the pro forma because they didn't know any better, right? And the pro forma is really a lie. Let's face it. I mean, I've been in this business for many, many years and I learned from the best. However, people still base it off of it. I'm just looking at, okay, what are, what are the things that are really moving the needle right now? And more often than not, it's relationships. Does that make sense? And if they have the relationships with Yale and Harvard and this and, you know, I mean, they went there and, and it's not just like, the, you know, they they live in Boston, they're in Natick, you know, or they're in, you know, somewhere in Cambridge. Well, what I like about you this know, approach is it's a methodology that's that you can like apply because I know that and deploy effectively with each company, with each offer. It doesn't matter what alternative investing, you know, thesis it is. I want to talk a little because you've been in this business for 20 plus years, okay? And you've been around the corner, you've been through all the ups and downs and so forth. Salvatore, you mentioned obviously all these pillars, these hurdles, the, the, this, your, this is your criteria, your methodology, right? How has that evolved since you first started to mm -hmm. now? And what were those, those that evolution um, that, that you started with to, to now? I, um, it was interesting. I mentioned it in the book, and I had a pivot in 2013 because we were just coming out of the Great Recession. Rates were going low, okay, and um, values were going up. And as someone who's traditionally distressed focused in real estate, it sort of went against the fabric of my being to sort of overbid on something just to say that I would overbid and, and have the asset. And I was actually outbid by a bunch of doctors and dentists who had signature lines of credit or using their home equity lines. And they were outbidding me on what's called necessity retail in Midwest. And these things were trading at a 10 cap going back to Moses, right? And they were, you know, they were, if anybody knows about this, the more you pay, the lower the cap rate. And so they were bidding the equivalent of like an eight cap rate. So they were going 200 basis points faster than I was or over what I wanted to do. And I just, put, I, I honestly, and I had, a, it was just to me, and as, you know, it was just, a, I had to bury the ego, and I gave back $19 million. And nobody likes to do that without putting a gun to your head, but it was sort of like, look, we got outbid. I, if we got into this deal, I would never have been able to get you out alive. This went against everything. And, you know, it basically it was a lawyer, you know, trying to force me to bid up because he had already seen the proof of funds and everything. And he's like, well, you know, what are you going to do? Give it back, son? I'm like, yeah. And I was, I, there was a few expletives after that. But, you know, just trust me that I was in full New York mode that day. And I gave the money back. And the money came back. And one of my mentors, and I was going through a little bit of a personal struggle with that life. I just lost my brother um, not too long after in 2015, very spontaneously. And I called one of my mentors in New York who I've invested into, and he has um, 69 um, IPOs and sales under his belt. He's close to 80, um, very wealthy, and he is one of the founding fathers of venture capital. And it was one of these things in my life where real estate wasn't really going anywhere for me at the time, you know, because I'm, you know, more of like a distressed guy and I need to show value rather than overbid and look where that's getting people today. And, he, and I said, I'd really like to start a venture fund and start investing into some of the things you're doing. And he said, with his thick Persian accent, well, let's do this. And over the course of the week, um, I was able to get a lot done as far as everything, as far as structuring it. But it was that hard pivot where I learned that I kept to my 
I had to keep to my guns, and I think a lot of people would have taken money from people just to make money, but they would have ruined themselves later. And this guy always told me to focus on quality, and that's why we have the world-class um, you know, venture fund that I manage and also you know, the multifamily office HRN, which has a lot of venture in it too as well. And if you go to hrn.llc or harlemrivernavy.org, you'll be able to see this and some of those names. We are in the midst of updating that. However, um, if you are on the website and, you know, you do want to, you know, you can, you know, obviously go to sal at hrn.llc and send an email and I'll get you on to the email distribution. But you'll see that we have a lot of um, world-class people that we work with because we've always attended to that quality. And if it wasn't the relationship I had with that one gentleman, I don't think I would have the partners I have today. I don't think I would have the success I would have today. Um, even, you know, and, 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 and some of the other things too. And even though we haven't done a lot of real estate, you know, since the pandemic because we were waiting for rates to go up and everything, to me that was an important skill set because I had to build on the salesmanship of myself to influence people to invest in something that nobody really likes to invest into. And that was sort of like a, an intellectual challenge for me because, you know, it kept me from being depressed, sort of. You know, I was still kind of upset and, and everything. But it really forced me to try to focus on, all right, here's the next challenge. Raise tens of millions of dollars, which is the equivalent of hundreds of millions of dollars for life science companies and try to get people's attention to do this who don't want to invest in life sciences because they, they don't want to be bored and reminded of high school biology and chemistry again. So we had to make it fun and interactive, but we were able to lever um, the successes of our CEOs and also the stories and their credibility in order to raise tens of millions of dollars into these deals. And the rest is history on that. And, you know, just recently, back in January or early February, we received news that one of our companies just received eight, uh, FDA approval for their um, personal um, defibrillation device. It's called a PED, and it's one of the hardest things to get from the FDA. This is a team that's 27 years old. There's a story behind this, but their father's a rock star CEO. Again, network relationships. And we were able, they were able to get um, an FDA device for the first mobile defibrillator. So think about it, all the unfortunate norms that are happening right now in the football fields, both in you know, the, the, you know, the professional leagues and also as it relates to high schools, you have a lot of these kids who are just going into cardiac arrest. Now every mom, coach, high school, brother, uncle is going to have one of these defibrillation advice that's really you know, the size of one of your iPods that you can charge and use you know, clear with your cell phone and it'll be powered by your cell phone. If you're interested in that, not, you know, I'm not, again, I, I'm, I, I'm not a salesperson, but if you go to aviveaed.com, or Vive Solutions, A-B-I-B-E, you'll be able to pick one I up I love that, and, and, and it was just because of that pivot that actually yeah. helped you and, integrate um, that To me, that's kind the massive impact that people make, that because when you start to pivoting towards that, you start living with the impact, the quality, and that has been, then people start um, to get a lot more emotionally engaged. Throughout your whole journey, um, and, and a lot of different ventures, which is really awesome. I want to talk a little bit about how you, you mentioned in your book the, the paradigm shift in regards to how the, you know, the 1% versus the 0.001%, right? And the 0.001%, like you mentioned, we were talking offline, they don't look to really mm -hmm. add, definitely if it's like second generation or whatever, they're not looking to add another comma to their wealth, right? They're looking for status symbols, just in different way. Owning sports, you know, owning class A real estate, you mentioned that a little bit. Before we dive into that thesis, I wanna ask, when you came to acknowledge that and become aware of that in your own life throughout your journey, 
How has that changed your investment thesis or your investment mm -hmm. strategy yeah. or maybe your perspective on how to deploy capital um, when, when you're partnering up with, with um, the, these, these ultra high net worth individuals? You know, the money always has a voice, and you have to give them the best product today. And the best product today isn't necessarily something that pays the highest return. It's something that they can brag to their friends about. Uh, we talked about this with sports. You know, we're pivoting into sports. Um, this could be world-class life science companies um, headed by people who are, um, for example, we have one that's headed by the 2018 Nobel Prize winner, Dr. James Allison, called Apricity Health. That is what sells because that's something that people are not going to be able to get into on their own because they don't have the knowledge nor do they have the network to get into that. So wealthy people are more, um, they, they, they tend to gravitate towards that more because there's a certainty there of execution because they know that someone's there and they can talk about that at the breakers over brunch or tea to their friends because everybody brags. Everybody, we all do. You know, social media has forced us to live a very conspicuous world and even people who you thought were never going to talk or brag are the ones who are, um, you know, are, the, are always going to be doing that. They might not show it on, 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 you know, Instagram, but there's a lot of hushed tones that get around. It always comes back to me because somebody will say, hey, I met someone at this club yesterday and, or, you know, over the weekend, they dropped your name. I'd like to link in with you. I'm like, okay, you know, and then, you know, we'll see what happens from there. But I think when it comes down to it is like, um, you look at, so they, to them, quality is a sign of um, value and it's a sign of value, a, a store of value. So if you own a part of an NFL team, that's only gone up in value and probably only will because of gambling now and the acceptance of that and how that's being integrated for the owner's benefit, that to them is certainty. It's a high barrier to entry, but there's certainty there. Um, same thing with statement class real estate, class A real estate. If, you look, if you've ever heard of the store Zara, the family office, um, that is one of them is based so what I find here. so interesting um, about they've this, deployed just like two billion dollars a year into what they call you're not looking assets. for That's the, the returns in this in buildings or, you know, Amazon centers returns. It's more of that status symbol. I think you mentioned your book, in, kind of Trump. The reason why I bring up Trump, value. I know he's not kind of controversial. It's they have they have at least four billion a year that's being thrown off in cash that they need to put somewhere. And what they're doing is again that is more of that status symbol more so than about eighty-five percent of their portfolio is and, some of the world's uh, best just, real estate in London, that. New York, LA, and, and Miami too. Interesting, interesting, awesome. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, alternative investing, private equity specifically. You have a good uh, memory. Mainly because yeah. we're seeing a lot of, you know, definitely yeah. with these uncertain You have a good times, memory. So Trump, uh, I, was, I read an you know, he's a value-added investor. That um, he's there's a going to be uh, several, uh, I think it's almost double, uh, trillions Trump of dollars that, added you know, he to the private equity by 2027. It's a huge amount of money, a lot of family offices are And he wanted the glory of going into Manhattan, and he did. Institutional, actually, in regards to deploying capital in that direction. So he's a perfect example of 
endowments we're seeing a large margin of their portfolio are in private equity and so forth. I wanted to get your perspective when you are working with your relationships and network, you know, off-market opportunities. Um, what are you seeing as regards to the opportunities, um, you know, pivoting away from the VC to the private equity, something a little bit more sustainable and, and good, you know, internal rate of return? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, it's interesting. I, when you look at privates as a whole, when you look at venture or private equity, you have a lot of smart people who are over-allocated into this for a reason. When you look at the stock market, that's like a 60-40 rule that has been invented by the brokerages over the past 50 years to keep you invested into your 401k. And that really mainstream advice doesn't really work for um, anyone with over $10 million in assets after a certain point. And what you're seeing is that the Yale Endowment, for example, has 86% of their um, assets invested into private equity or venture. Harvard, not a slouch either, around 77%. So what does that really tell you about the smart money? And you can bet that those companies that they've invested into, much like ours, because we've co-invested with some of them, don't are, are much more higher barrier to entry, right? Like life sciences, or maybe something with AI, with a very, very you know huge lead investor and a big contract with you know sports teams, which is something that we've we've involved with. So to us, it's you know the private is where the real wealth creation is. It always has been. Um, if you look at real estate, for example, commercial real estate, it's always gone up mostly, you know, except for when interest rates have gone up, as we're seeing now. But it's but it's something that is not to the whims or does, ha does not have the same risk profile as owning a bucket of common stocks that can be written down to zero by a bankruptcy judge at any given point because there was a run on your bank. Does that make sense? So these people want to get in early where they can control the terms and price, which is where the real wealth creation is, rather than not having control um, after the company goes public. Because there's a false sense of control with people when they say, I own stocks, is that they can sell any time. Yeah, they can sell at a loss. But I also control the terms that I get into with one of these companies, and if I want more options or warrants or something like that, I can ask that. And a, and a great example of this is like what happened in 2003 with Martha Stewart. She, you know, she had a fan base of, of women that owned her stock, and it was almost like they had bought that stock purposely because they wanted to be a part of her, and it was like to her they saw her as a store of value until she went to jail. Then the stock went down. What control did they have over that? None. Did they have old Martha's cell phone to call and complain about the stock price dropping of their 200 shares that they own? No, not at all. So you got to look at it. You know, the, the, the middle class is, has that still like that scarcity mindset. Whereas when you look at the, so you the, the, like, you know, the people um, who I, I deal with, they want to know not only what the risk is, but what are the terms? The How are we right controlling now? this? What happens and I've if everything goes bad? How do we insulate ourselves PE. from the risk? Uh, but and the thing is, with they that don't really is care who you're in bed with. You know, as I said before, the cap table is sold at any venture private equity firm. Same thing with real estate, too. If you have a lead real estate guy, that's very important, too. But people feel as though there's no control in stocks. You can't control the price of terms. 
have to actually and I think a lot of people think that just having liquidity which is basically a financially engineered product I want to get your opinion on that made for you know the common investor is is control and it's really not Yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. You're right. Yeah. That's where we come in, and you know that's what you know people. You know that's where the trust and the credibility is. Is our ability to do that with my two partners, Life Sciences and um, other industries. They have a world class track record with real estate. The same thing for me. Um, the funds are, you know, everybody comes to me and I'll, I'll hear someone and from middle America say, I want to start a fund. And I'm like, oh, I just roll my eyes because having had funds, they're not fun because especially, you know, if you have to mark to market them. And the, the real issue is, and we saw this with Tiger and I, and I posted this on my LinkedIn, is that once you take in a massive amount of money, you have to put that money out quickly because you have what's called the IRR clock to your head. And so that enforces emerging managers or managers that don't have a lot of experience to put money out into things that they probably would not have put in in the first place just so they can show their investors that they're doing this. And the, the, the model we have, which is great, is that we make direct investments. So now you have the discretion. Maybe you don't want to invest in life sciences, Christian, but you love this. AI scout company and you know that's something that we've invested into and you're very into it um, that's fine that's your discretion and that's what families want is discretion they want a full understanding of it because when you're when you're an investment manager like us as I said in the book you're 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 sort of like running like the flight control tower right you're, you're guiding the planes in making sure that the documents come in and you know making sure the T's are dotted that you know T's are crossed and the I's are dotted but you're also an educator too making sure that your investors understand the investment in a way to take the time to educate them so they feel comfortable about it and you know in real estate or venture it's where your money goes and how it comes back sometimes this is very simple just because somebody has a lot of money doesn't necessarily mean they have an understanding of what IRR is and I, I don't mean that to sound derogatory but you have to sort of talk to people and they're like no you don't take the IRR to the Ferrari dealership you take the cash on cash return to the you know Ferrari dealership then they get it that way you know and and that you know that comes you know from years of talking to people you just develop the relationship but sort of the charisma around it to influence them so that they feel comfortable investing with you. But you have to, but you're absolutely right. Nobody wants to get into a fund anymore because they just see that a lot of these funds haven't performed, but they've enriched their fund managers because when you have a billion dollars in assets making 2% per year, well, you bring what's, up the, such, asset, what's, such the, what's the incentive for that because, manager you know, like to take any risk? You know, he's just sitting on the assets and he's just going to buy And that's really the difference we're seeing right now with a lot of the... But I love how you're obviously... It's a funny story, but there's a difference between what we're doing versus what a lot of the... Collaborating with a lot of family offices. You guys are filtering these exclusive deals, right? Very relational. Those guys right now, they'll invest in a few deals, but remember, they're tracking... They run through your very high-developed methodology and hurdles, and they're 
did not really spit them out and say, hey, this is approved. It's going through our very strenuous, you know, kind of underwriting process. And then say, hey, this is the opportunity because in the family office doing direct deals, it's very expensive and it's costly to underwrite and do all that process for them individually, correct? So it's so yeah. Well, yeah, and the problem is, is that it's also a function of where you live. If you live in New York and you're a family office and you need to find a CIO, it's kind of easy to find someone, right? Just anyone off of like Goldman or Morgan Stanley can do that for you. However, when you're in you know less disparate parts of the financial center of the world, that's where you start. People start trusting people who they think have the skill set that don't, and it could be like a financial advisor at Raymond James. They don't know anything other than selling you a menu, a sushi menu full of stocks, right? But they, you know, my, you know I can't tell you how many times I've gotten on the phone, like, oh, I talked to my financial. Okay, well, what's his background? Well, he's really good, smart. And you see him on the LinkedIn phone, and I'm like, no, we're not going to do this. Like, I, you know, if you want to talk, that's fine. If you, you know, if you have someone serious who doesn't have a tribal tattoo around his arm, you know about this. And no offense to that, but like, you know, someone who really takes this seriously as you do, I'll spend the time with it. No, 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 no. And sure enough, they'll just invest anyway. But to them, yeah, they just want to have and, uh, like yeah, that I'm so validation. Glad we were able to talk about that. That's why that paradigm and what you we excel pretty well with the emerging families. Uh, Salvatore, man, I really appreciate you being on here. Just unpacking your methodology, your principles. We're, we're not looking to think about these things. And the evolution of the one percent between the point zero zero one percent, right? And their investment strategy and their way they think about things and because a lot of the situations we see might still well And in private equity, that's not so much the case because you're dealing with bigger for those that want to be like you mentioned, I know like that, through our podcast, some ways to get in contact you know, with you. Further along. Um, how else do they so reach there's out many to other you factors to take into that. But as far as what we're working with as it relates to venture, a lot of these families want to make direct principal investments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome, guys. And those links will be in the description. I put all of his content down there as well as all the other uh, links he mentioned throughout the podcast. I'll make sure I put those in the description. So I appreciate making yourself available where you put your email down there. So I'll put his email so you can reach out to him. Uh, guys, that is my friend, the CEO and CIO um, of Dandrew Partners, the one and only Salvatore Boucher. Um, the guys, that is Journey with Christian Davis podcast. Until next time, be uncommon. Um, otherwise, they can send me an email direct to, at sal at hrn. Dot LLC. That's HRN, Harlem River Navy, HRN.LLC. And um, if there's anything you want to talk about, let me know. We're not looking for deals right now, so don't show me any deals. Um, but if there's anything else we need to help you with, let me know.
Absolutely.